In 2017, the Academy Awards gave the Oscar for Best Picture to La La Land. And then a minute later, they took it back and gave it to Moonlight instead. What if we could do that every year? It's time for the Moonlight Awards, a journey through movie history. One year, five nominees, and one new Best Picture at a time. Now, here are your hosts, Rachel Shavitz and Aaron Keck. And welcome into episode number two of the Moonlight Awards, covering the year 1931 and awarding the best movie therefrom. I'm Aaron Keck. I'm Rachel Shavitz. And we are excited to talk about this year in cinema, a year that had some of our panelists a little bit stymied because there are so many good movies from this year. That's a good problem to have. So let's talk about 1931 in cinema. Where do we, where are we in movie history at this point? So 1931 is the final death rattle of silent film. It's the tail end of this era and the beginning of sound, sync sound films. So we see brilliant silent film directors and filmmakers and actors and actresses. Sometimes this this year might be the year they make their first sound picture. What's cool about that is that it's a time of experimentation. So we see full-length scores. We see experimentation with sound effects and sound design to lend a psychological authenticity to a particular scene, let's say. We see all kinds of interesting performances that don't have to be silent film style, like overly acting, like almost yep. theatrical. We have the ability to be more nuanced and play for a close-up because you're going to have a close-up now and you can have your whisper. Yeah. It's very different. And so sometimes people can't make that transition. Sometimes they make it brilliantly. And so... 31, 32, this is a fun time to see what those experimentations look like. One of our panelists, uh, Shilpa Dave from uh, University of Virginia, mentioned that not specifically to 1931, but at this period in history, there are these studios that are churning out movies, but there are a lot of independent movies that are being made as well. A lot of them are not going to make this list because they come and they go. Maybe they get lost, but there's a lot of really amazing stuff happening just outside the studio system. Absolutely. And it's a shame. I mean, I think Americans didn't get their preservation game together mm-hmm. for a really long time. The French did a much better job. And in fact, during World War II, there was a whole smuggling campaign of saving all of these films and, and getting them across the border to different places so that they could be preserved. And we did not get our game together. So if there were brilliant independent American films being made at that time, there's a very small chance that they'll still survive. And then we can continue to watch them and learn from them. So a reminder of the way this works, we have looked at at all of the films that came out. We haven't watched every single movie that came out in 1931. All right. (laughs) Rachel has watched every single movie. I'm just (laughs) along for the ride. But we have compiled a ton of data about what movies do people still watch today from 1931. We've compiled data about what critics and scholars still hold up as being particularly great from 1931. And to supplement that, and in a lot of cases to break ties, uh, we have reached out to a very distinguished panel of scholars, and we've given them a list of about 10 to 15 movies every year, and we said, hey, rank these uh, according to your preference, and if there are movies that are of your preference that are not on this list, go ahead and write them in. So we should mention some of the fun write-in votes that we've gotten. 
movies yeah. that didn't really necessarily ping our radar, but some scholars really loved. And one, well, one from 1930 that we didn't mention, Under the Roofs of Paris, got yeah. a number of votes from several different people. Yeah, that's a beautiful, perfect example of this experimentation with sound. Mm-hmm. We have a really beautiful, it's funny because it's now like a cartoon of Paris, this like street singer with an accordion and like flowers in the balconies and it's like this beautiful shot and now it would be like the opening scene from Ratatouille or something <laughs> because that's like but you know part of what we're doing here is discussing like what are the the things that last and that is a beautiful film and it also sets up this understanding for people who never go to Paris of yeah. what it is and what it sounds like. From 1931 the most popular write-in was Le Million. We also had Three Penny Opera which yeah. is and I think about the the early musicals from the 1930s as being the kind of like big Busby Berkeley, yep. like all of a sudden the camera pulls back and we're on clearly a stage with no audience because the whole room is a stage and you've got all yeah. of this going on. And then you've got the Three Penny Opera, which is much grittier. Yeah. yeah. And I think that reminds us of what people did for entertainment in this era. So you go to the theater, but most people just don't. It's just not part of our culture anymore. And I think remembering that theater and early film were in stark competition with each other and that often the best actors came from the stage in vaudeville. And uh, we saw recreation of theatrical plays as films, just, you know, proscenium stage, slap a camera in front, shoot. Yep. And and we got, of course, we've, we've evolved from that. But often our fallback, our comfortable place is either great works of literature that stood the test of time or plays that were very popular. And it's the same thing we see today with DC Comics or superhero movies. It's a built-in fan base, a built-in audience. You know people know Three Penny Opera or they know these musicals because they were just on Broadway last year. Yeah. So let's get those stars and put them in a studio and shoot something and we'll make a bunch of money. So those were some of our write-ins. On the list of movies that we actually gave them, there were some that were very popular among the scholars that weren't quite popular enough to make our top five, but we got to talk about a couple of them. And one in particular that came real close to making the top five is Anu La Liberté. Yeah, so this is a... In my bad American attempt to speak French. French film. It's cool. (laughs) It's not exactly like dos cervezas. Oh, give give me time. Give me time. (laughs) So this was René Clair's, one of his first two sound films. So it gets to this, the other one is Les Millions. So this gets to this idea of... Oh, poor guy. He got left off of both of our... Poor thing. But he gets a chance to do some experimentation. He does some oral flashbacks, which we have picture like a character hears a song and then again Ratatouille right and yeah. flashes back to oh, another time man. so we're seeing um, the film language being built by these filmmakers and um, using this new ability to include sound in their films as a way to take the audience on a journey with the characters in their minds. I was like Proust with a song instead of a cookie, right? Yeah, yeah. Oh, that's exactly. Awesome. All right, so any other films from 1931 that you want to, to to bring out before we... Well, I think I will say that there was a little bit of a controversy with um, Anu La Liberté in that Charlie Chaplin's Modern Times in 1936 borrows from this a lot. Uh, and of course, uh... Modern Times is considered like a stalwart classic. Oh, for no sure. one can say a bad thing about it. And um, My personal favorite from the decade. Yeah. Yeah. Um, He, Claire was embarrassed by the whole thing and um, had great admiration for Chaplin and it didn't really turn into a whole shebang like it may have. I think because the both the filmmakers had such a great respect for each other. But I think that 
you know, imitation is the sincerest form of flattery. Like, certainly if Chaplin borrowed, quote unquote, from Claire, it was because he thought he was doing something wonderful. And so it bears mentioning because we know that Chaplin went on to become the most famous filmmaker in his era. And Modern Times is considered his masterpiece. And some of it may have been borrowed from. So let that be a lesson. If you're going to rip someone off, rip someone off with whom you have a very positive working relationship with. And then you can get Get away with it yeah. once. Yeah, and I mean, because it's a French film, the, the settlement was only reached after World War II, and so by then it was like, ah, it's ancient oh, history. Okay, that's fine, yeah. <laughs> All right, so our five nominees in alphabetical order, we uh, we mentioned them at the end of the last episode. Speaking of Chaplin, City Lights, Dracula, Frankenstein, the two monster movies back-to-back, M, and The Public Enemy. Yeah, uh, where do you want to start? These are five amazing movies. I and there's know. a couple other great ones from 31 that we're not going to get to. Little Caesar, which yeah. I actually like better than The Public Enemy, so that was that was a tough one for me. Yeah, but you're an early gangster film like aficionado there was a There was one week when I was like, I got to bang all these out. <laughs> so in one week, I watched Scarface, The Public Enemy, and Little Caesar. Uh, I love it. And then I just had this inescapable urge to rob a bank. I'm I sure didn't. you did, with a Tommy gun. This <laughs> is hard to come by these days. Yeah. Uh, all right, so City Lights. Okay. City Lights, it's so funny because we were just talking about Chaplin borrowing from people, and City Lights is one that people borrow from constantly. Mm. And when these film scholars and different students and things interview their favorite directors about their favorite director's favorite directors or their favorite films, this is one that's always on the list. So I just kind of looked up briefly before we started recording, and it's Orson Welles said it was his favorite film. Stanley Kubrick said City Lights was in his top five. Woody Allen, George Bernard Shaw, Federico Fellini, Andre Tarkovsky, I mean, you name it, in the like pantheon of brilliant filmmakers, everyone's saying, oh, but it's City Lights, it's City Lights, it's City Lights. You know, the curator of the Museum of Modern Art says it's the one, you know, it's just like you can't even, it's ridiculous. So why? Because I, I ask because I've seen all of the, like the Chaplin feature movies, I've seen The Kid, The Gold Rush, The Circus, which sure. is this great forgotten movie. Yeah, uh, Immigrant. Of course, Modern Times, Great Dictator, the ones that come later. And City Lights, I think is my least favorite of all of them. And I don't know huh. what's wrong with me. Yeah, what is wrong? No, I, so many things. But <laughs> like, what is it about this particular one of all the Chaplin features that stands out? One thing is talking about the era in which it was made. So mm-hmm. sound was the thing. It was everyone, nobody wanted to even see silent films anymore, and this one was silent. And so it speaks to Chaplin's vision, his artistic vision for what he wanted to do, that he knew he wanted to make this a silent film. And he had the clout to do so. And the lyrical, the romantic nature of this, this final scene in City Lights is considered by many to be one of the greatest scenes in cinema of any language of any era and so and it's been ripped off (laughs) I can't even tell you how many times so there's a feeling that we have an auteur right this notion of a writer director actor all of these things he is the author of this film every aspect of it he has his fingers on and he had a vision for it and executed that vision and it's what we see before us Dracula It's really good to see you. I don't know what happened to the driver and my luggage and... Well, and with all this, I I thought I was in the wrong place. I bid you welcome. Listen to them. Children of the night. 
much music they make. So Dracula (laughs) is pre-code horror. I mean, need I say more? (laughs) We have the beginning here of of filmic language of how to make things eerie and mysterious with a variety of ways through cinematography, through lighting, through sound, through performance. We're building the language of how we're going to do the psychological thriller, which is one of my favorite genres, just just watch on a plane or in my bed or something. Right. This is how we learned how to do it, is by these pre-code horror films figuring it out for us. Nothing better than watching a good psychological thriller right before going to sleep, I right? I know. What's wrong? What's wrong with me now? <laughs> so many things. I know. So many. Performances in this? Well, let's, let's, let's move on to Frankenstein, because then okay. we can compare the two. Too, sure. Frankenstein. Look, it's moving. It's alive. It's alive. It's alive. It's moving. It's alive. Oh, it's alive. It's alive. It's alive. It's alive. Oh, in the name of God. Now I know what it feels like to be God. So Frankenstein is, again, this is another one produced by my favorite, Carl Lemley. So mm-hmm. this is a universal film made in the studio system, pre-code. And this one's more science fiction than true horror compared, you know, if we're going to split hairs and, right. and be specific about it. Because we're interrogating this idea of playing God, which science fiction does so beautifully. The Boris Karloff as Frankenstein image is indelible. Yes. Everyone has dressed up as this kind of Frankenstein. Yeah. When you draw a picture, when you think of Frankenstein in your head, it's no the other version. Yep. It's this one. Yeah. And you could almost say nothing else about the film, but if you were talking about the legacy of its what it's contributed to popular culture, that is something that it has dramatically contributed yeah. to popular culture. Dracula and Frankenstein, and you mentioned this, so many movies are taking just popular literature right. and and these are two films that take these popular books and they supplant the books in a lot of they ways. They do. And I think we have Bela Lugosi and we have Boris Karloff and they inhabit these roles and they change how they're done by everyone forever. else forever. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Like Max Shrek and Nosferatu right. is great. Oh, yeah. And so much creepier with the makeup, uh-huh. unless you're Shadow with a Vampire and you just assume he was born that <laughs> way. But yeah, just both of them just yeah. they change it forever it's amazing and it's i think we're in this era now where vampires are really hot you mm-hmm. know like it's all over popular fiction and filmmaking <laughs> and i think it's kind of waning thank the good lord but <laughs> it, we have seen a sort of ebb and flow of a focus on on playing god and the vampire and the frankenstein type of film and we've seen vampires this obsession with living forever and immortality and what does that do to someone and is it something to be striven for or something to be avoided and all these sorts of things. And I think had this been a flop or done poorly, maybe Bram Stoker's Dracula would have been a thing that might be on a bookshelf, but it wouldn't (laughs) have been this thing that all these kids dressing up as every year for Halloween. Both of these movies are, both of these stories are about the attempt to cheat death and how we shouldn't, right? I never thought about that. Totally. 
Absolutely. And I think uh, one of the other cool things about both of these films is because we're operating in a genre, we have the opportunity to experiment with some other special effects. So we're talking about experimenting with sound earlier and and cinematography and, and those things are being experimented with regardless of genre. But these are the films that are starting to really get into fog and oh, um, yeah. uh, shooting at angles through glass to and then reflecting a bat off of, you know, all of these sorts of things that Hitchcock is going to rip off down the road. Every horror director is going to rip off. And in in an homage way, in a way where these guys did it first and they did it great and we're going to continue. Next nominee is M. But I can't understand. Kann ich denn anders? Habe ich denn nicht dieses Verfluchte in mir? Das Feuer, die Stimme, die Qual. Now this one is just... I love this movie. It's just so freaking. Oh, man. Talk about shooting through glass. <laughs> I mean, oh, man. So this is um, directed by Fritz Lang, made in Germany, set in Berlin, all about a serial killer and a manhunt happening in this moment in 1931 in Germany. I mean, it's just like unbelievable. Yeah. And Peter Lorre is so, he's the main character. He's a serial killer. He's not a good guy. And somehow the movie makes you feel simultaneously repulsed by and sympathetic totally. towards him. And we talked earlier about the ability for sound to allow nuance. And so we get, I think, leading up to this, because we had to have these sort of more hammy, on-the-nose performances in order to convey the story, we had really clear good guys and bad guys. And now in the sound era, we're able to have flawed anti-heroes, people who we know are bad, but we're rooting for them anyway, people who are just disgusting and terrifying, but we have sympathy for them because we see that they're suffering in uh, Frankenstein, the monster in Frankenstein. Right. Or in M, where we are looking into the tangled mind of someone and experiencing life through the perspective of someone that we would never. And so those things are only possible when we're able to put all of the elements of filmmaking together. At least until 1934, when the code brings the hammer down on a lot of that. Yeah. We And we haven't talked a ton about the code, but it's a really important point to bring up again in this episode. Pre-code films. They're, the code exists and it has been adopted, but it's not being, they're not bringing down the hammer quite yep, yet yep. until 1934. And so we get these films that allow us to think about th- sympathizing with a serial killer or with a mad scientist who recreates, reanimates corpses or yeah. whatever. And so we have a chance to look at the dark side and think about human nature. And that is just not happening post-code. The public enemy. We got words for you. What's up, Tom? We got a little business to settle. Jane or no Jane? We ain't sore, are you, Tom? I've always been your friend. Sure. You taught us how to cheat, steal, and kill. And then you lambed out on us. Yeah, if it hadn't been for you, we might have been on the level. Sure. We might have been ding-dings on a streetcar. Come on. Every single one of these movies does this. Totally. And this is why... What horrible thing did Chaplin do in City of Lights that I'm forgetting? He had to have done something. I don't know. That's not really Chaplin's style, if I'm real. (laughs) Uh, Which is why he had such a successful career postcode. Yeah, yeah. (laughs) So um, this might be one of our only... This and um, City Lights are the only American films on our list. Mm. Public Enemy is not remarkably different from the other pre-code gangster films. To your point that you love other gangster films more than 
this one. And so there's not a great reason why this one is the one on our list, except that maybe people love Jean Harlow. This one is just sort of the one that, that people have had a chance to see. And a lot of the mechanisms of our rating system have to do with the ones that people have seen. Mm-hmm. Set in, in uh, Prohibition-era America. Right. And so that's really fun, too. I think that's an underrepresented time in our own country's history. We think of Gatsby and those sorts of things. Right. But this is the, a different side of Prohibition-era. This that is, is the gritty stuff. I yeah. guess this is why all of these gangster movies become so prominent in 1931 and 32, right? Because we've we've lived with this for 13 years. We're sick of it. Yeah. So the repeal movement is happening and we're starting to sympathize with the gangsters. Not just sympathize, but glamorize. Glamorize, valorize. yeah, time. They are our heroes. Yeah. And they are, even in death, they're endowed with amazing grandeur and sympathy. And, you know, I talked about it before. This These films are the reason that code came to be. Yes. And, you know, if you're just looking at it on paper... A film or a series, a ton, a ton, a ton of films that valorize gangsters. I can understand why people were not uh, not happy about it. We mentioned at the the top that there are a ton of really great movies, specifically from 1931. In spite of that, looking at the data, looking at critics' list of the all-time best movies, looking at which movies are seen the most today, and also surveying our our panel of film scholars, there is shockingly universal agreement that these are the top five. Oh, wow. Yeah, these are the five movies that get mentioned on the critics' best of all time lists. No other movies from 1931 uh, get mentioned. These are the top five most viewed movies, uh, according to IMDb users. And when we did our panel of scholars, Anu La Liberté came in a close sixth with 70 points, Dracula in fifth place with 78, and then it's the other four Runaway, Frankenstein and Public Enemy tied for third with 110 points. And then it's, I think, the obvious top two, which are City Lights with 147 points, M with 176. Those are the two movies that get mentioned in the Sight and Sound Mm -hmm. polls. Those are the two movies that get mentioned more often than any others in the critics' all-time best list. Those are also the two most viewed movies of all time. Mm. So critics and scholars and filmgoers agree on those five as being the five best. And M and City Lights as being the two best. Yeah. And then it's just a question of what's number one. Wow. Yeah. How do we compare M to City Lights? <laughs> it's, 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 I mean, you made a point earlier about no one ever splits them up by year, and instead they they just pick their favorites from, yeah. a, you know, decades and decades worth of film. And in some ways that is a fairer comparison than this, because you're comparing City Lights-ish movies to each other, and yes. you're comparing M-ish movies to each other, and picking which one is the best of the M-ish movies. Yeah. Which we can do with the, the Public Enemy and Little Caesar and we Scarface. Did, we did it. We did it. Yeah, yeah. we did it. Yeah. Uh, and I think... Um, that's way easier to do. And this is just not even apples and oranges. It's like apples and like Snickers bars or something. It's just like totally so completely different. Don't give Snickers the idea. They're going to put <laughs> apples in their Snickers bars next. So if you look at the Sight and Sound poll from 2012, and again, 2022, there's going to be a new one. This could change. But City Lights comes out ahead of M by a little bit for both the critics and directors. City Lights is a little bit ahead of M in user votes on IMDb. But the critics or the, the film scholars in our our panel really favor M over City Lights. And again, it's not that close. Most of the vast majority of the scholars that we surveyed loved both of them and loved M a little bit more. I think I'm going to land on that probably because 
because I th- I'm thinking back to some of the editing of M mm-hmm. and how, and I talked earlier about how some of the conventions using M are the language of the psychological thriller ever since. But I'm thinking about there's particular scenes when the police investigation is happening and then we see the serial killer and, and we're cutting back and forth and we're the editing is adding to our frenzy as an audience member, which is putting us in the position of our killer. And so we're inhabiting that space, which is super pre-code, right? Yeah. But that notion of allowing editing, not just to set the pace and the rhythm of the film, but to be a psychological component of our viewing experience to me, that feels like something that every single car chase movie, you know, I'm thinking about the scene from Goodfellas where the helicopters are going overhead. Oh, you know, yes. That feeling, we are panicked with him. Mm-hmm. And that is possible through this kind of editing that I think Fritz Long pioneered in this film so beautifully. And I, I feel like I have to give it to M for that reason alone. All right, I've got the envelope. I've got this. All right. Oh, I would need to bring an actual envelope. So you can rip a, it. Johnny so I can Carson rip it. Style. Yeah, I can rip this piece of paper, <laughs> right? It. All right, here we go. <laughs> and the Moonlight Award for 1931 goes to M. Woo! Hey! Did they get it right? They got it right. Okay, good. Accepting on behalf of M is Peter Laurie. Peter, what do you think? It's it's very good. How do you plan on celebrating? Bring on the wine. <laughs> All right, so now to business for 1932. We've got to yep. announce our nominees for okay. 1932. Oh my God, this I'm is a so tough excited. one. Like 1931, it is super obvious what the top five movies are. And like even you can, from within them with the top two, I think yeah. it was really a clear runaway for City Lights and for M. Yeah, 1932 is way more complex. It's way less clear what the number one one movie is there are a bunch of movies that could potentially be the nominees but here are our top five the nominees for best picture of 1932 freaks wow we're starting at we're going Did out the gate with freaks. <laughs> the other gangster movie scarface okay shanghai express oh yeah trouble in paradise yes lubich's first appearance by the way someone wrote in the smiling lieutenant for 1931 so lubich got some love but good, 1932 good. we'll talk about lubich a lot more yes we will and our final nominee vampire okay yeah cool this will be fun because we've talked about pre-code gangsters but now we can talk about pre-code romance film nice which is a whole nother thing awesome that is the moonlight award for 1931 congratulations to fritz and m and peter cast and crew of m yeah they they really deserved it they do thank you so much thank you bye guys